Today on Podcast by the Bay, we feature California's state senator for District 13, Jerry Hill. I think where we've done a lot and uh, I've tried to look at over my tenure is uh, I get mad. I see things in our community, in our society, and I get mad about it. And when I get mad, I want to do something to improve it and change it. Who discusses many of the issues affecting District 13 and also perspective on some of the issues of the past, such as the San Bruno pipeline fire. But it didn't take long for us to realize that through our investigations in my office and, and what the others were doing in the press and the media, we found that, uh, that it wasn't an accident. It was the result of corruption, corruption at the highest levels of the Public Utilities Commission, corruption in PG&E uh, that uh, diverted hundreds of millions of dollars from safety, from maintenance, and from operations. They diverted that money to profits and bonuses uh, for executives and for the company. So it, it became very clear that this wasn't an accident and it was, uh, uh, it was bound to happen. The whole culture of PG&E shifted. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com and also Highway Soul Productions, www.highwaysoul.com. And now, another podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. This is Andre. And this is Patrick. And welcome to another rendition of Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for downloading this episode. And we thank you for spreading the word to all your friends out in podcast land. We definitely appreciate it. And so today we're going to continue our coverage of the state senators here in the Bay Area. And so today's senator we're going to speak with is from District 13. And we're going to feature State Senator Jerry Hill. And so, Patrick, you got to speak with Senator Hill and talk many of the issues. Can you give us a little background about Senator Hill and about some of the cities that encompass District 13? Yeah, Jerry's 13th district covers almost a million people in the uh, state of California. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and it covers all the way from uh, the peninsula, San Francisco Peninsula and Silicon Valley. Uh, it's the 13th uh, Senate district. Uh, he preceded uh, Gene Mullins and succeeded by Phil Ting. Uh, Jerry is a native San Franciscan. Uh, he uh, went to the College of San Mateo, graduated from Berkeley, um, also got his master's degree from uh, San Francisco State University. Uh, Jerry Hill started his career as a in a homeowners association where he, in uh, 1991 and worked his way up to city council. He was also on the San Mateo Transit District. Um, he was a uh, pioneer for his times. He worked diligently on smoking issue and, uh, and made an ordinance in the city of San Mateo restricting smoking in public places. Uh, he was on the Board of Supervisors in 1998 to the year 2008. Uh, he's an advocate for children. Uh, he's an advocate for the environment. Uh, Jerry is serving his last term. Uh, he will be termed out of the Senate in the year 2020. Um, he's well known for the um, fighting hard on the PG&E thing. As we know, we had all those fires. It was the fire in San Bruno in 2010. He fought hard against the PG&E, and he's still struggling with the battle a little bit. We, we talked about uh, the housing situation. We talked about rent control. We talked about the homeless issue. Uh, it was a really, really down-to-earth discussion. We appreciate his time. I, I look forward to uh, the, our listeners listening to, to uh, my chat with Jerry Hill. We spent uh, quite a bit of time together, and I'm looking forward to following up with him uh, when he decides what he's going to do next. Sounds good, Patrick. And we'd like to thank Senator Hill for speaking with Patrick and Podcast by the Bay. 
for really talking to many of the issues about what's happening here on the peninsula and really the Bay Area in general and up in Sacramento as well. And also, we'd really like to thank Leslie and Jennifer, the staff for Senator Hill, for really making this happen and for really working out the scheduling and really making this happen for the listeners here at Podcast by the Bay to really hear from Senator Hill. So we definitely appreciate that. So with that, we're going to go ahead and sign off and get to the exclusive interview with Senator Hill here on Podcast by the Bay. And if you have any questions, you have any feedback, please reach out to us at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay as our handle or on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcastbythebay and also on our website, www.podcastbythebay.com. And remember, you can listen to any of our shows 24 hours a day, seven days a week on any of the podcast sites, whether it's iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Pocket Casters, and even Spotify. Please check us out. All the shows are free. So with that, signing off, this is Andre. And this is Patrick. And we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Welcome to Podcast by the Bay, Bay Media Communication, Inc. Uh, Today is actually the... uh, 16th of uh, July, and um, actually it's a very special moment, Jerry. We're in Jerry Hill's office, uh, Senate District 13. Jerry's a native of San Francisco, graduated from Balboa High School, also attended UC Berkeley and got his undergraduate. Um, I also found out he got some secondary education. Jerry and I go back over 30 years. Uh, let me tell you, Jerry, I want to bring a little trivia to your mind before I get into some real serious trivia. Around 30 years ago, I sold one of your places, uh, which was Broadway Hardware. I don't know if you remember that. Of course I remember it, Patrick. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that was a pretty trying time. I know, Jerry, you lost your first wife there due to breast cancer. So I know you've made some uphill battles all the way. You're a struggler and a fighter. Today is also the uh, takeoff of the, uh, this is the 50th year of the landing on the moon. And today was the initial blast off. And as you well know, Jerry, at that time, I kind of gathered chronologically you were 22. Where were you, Jerry, when, when the, when the uh, moon, uh, moonwalk was happening and what were you doing? Well, I was on vacation, actually, and watched it from a hotel room uh, in Southern California and uh, saw it on that little TV, and I think I was at a Motel, Motel 6 somewhere, and watched the, uh, the landing just as everyone else was just uh, uh, engrossed in that phenomenal point of history that uh, was exciting. Well, we can still remember those famous words from John F. Kennedy, and where he said, uh, we choose to go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is difficult. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. This was 1969 when we finally landed on the moon and the dream came true. And if we can remember what Neil Armstrong said, that's one small step for mankind and one giant leap for mankind. So That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Jerry, you've done a lot. Uh, in the last 30 plus years in politics. I watched your career from city council uh, to board of supervisors to assembly and senate. Uh, we only have a few a few moments of your time. We greatly appreciate that with podcast by the Bay. And we're going to try to highlight on some of those. And we're hoping that we could do a follow-up with you. So, Jerry, um, I remember those days when you were the pioneer for tobacco and anti-tobacco. What, what got you inspired uh, to be anti-smoking, and you were—that uh, was kind of controversial. I remember in the city of San Mateo, or any city. Well, you're right, Patrick. It was uh, quite controversial. It was in 1994, and people don't remember how you could smoke in bars, you could smoke in restaurants, you could smoke in the workplace. Everywhere you turned around, there was someone smoking. And uh, in fact, 50% when I was growing up, 50% of the population smoked. And then we started realizing that uh, 50% of the population was dying pretty quickly. They were, they were suffering from uh, diseases brought on by the, uh, the tobacco smoke. And then uh, also realized that uh, through the, the research that was done is that secondhand smoke was also killing people. So in 1964, actually when I was mayor of the city of San Mateo, we passed the first 
uh, first or second ordinance in the state banning smoking in restaurants, banning smoking in the workplace and in bars. Uh, that was uh, quite uh, controversial and uh, I received quite a bit of, uh, of, uh, <laughs> of upset from a number of restaurants and a number of people around the city. But to me, it was critical that uh, uh, I see uh, Everett Koop, who was the uh, Surgeon General of the United States at the time, made a comment, and I never forgot it and always believed it then and believe it now, is that your right to smoke ends when that smoke hits the tip of my nose. And I think that's a critical distinction. Uh, and uh, I just didn't want and have watched uh, children uh, uh, start smoking, and nicotine is more addictive than heroin. And uh, so I've been fighting that ever since then. Uh, I know of no one who really suffered from it. My mother smoked uh, when I was growing up, but uh, it, uh, it's a tragic uh, addiction and we're still fighting it. And now with the uh, jewel and vaping uh, young people in high school right now, 78% increase in smoking of e-cigarettes uh, by high school students and a 58% increase by middle school. So well, Jerry, the fight still continues on, and, and I know each city is passing more and more ordinances, not being able to smoke within 50 or 100 feet of a public building. Also, apartment owners are restricting their things, too. Um, one of the things that most of our audience probably are familiar with, Jerry, was, uh, was September 9th, 2010, and that, that was the uh, fire in San Bruno. Um, you couldn't but see you on the TV fighting for the people in the state of California. So everybody understands uh, Senate District 13 covers almost approximately a million people. I think it's 947,000 uh, people. So, Jerry, what, what, you know, you, you've been fighting, uh, fighting this battle with PG&E. Uh, I know we lost about eight lives and uh, the tragedies and was, uh, settlement was somewhere in a $585 million. And also, we were able to prosecute, actually prosecute the PG&E. Why don't you share, share with the, our podcast audience your feelings from the September uh, 9th, well, that, 2010? That, uh, Patrick, that was one of the, the most uh, uh, tragic experiences of my life, to see that devastation the morning after it occurred and walk through it and see the cars and the trucks that were parked a block or so away from the explosion, they were melted, the tires were melted. I mean, the heat, the eight lives that were lost, the 38 homes that were destroyed, and the 68 other homes that were damaged. I mean, it was devastating for a community. And at first, we thought it was an accident. At first, you know, things happen. And, uh, and I thought, well, this was a, a terrible accident. But it didn't take long for us to realize that through our investigations in my office and, and what the others were doing in the press and the media, we found that, uh, that it wasn't an accident. It was the result of corruption, corruption at the highest levels of the Public Utilities Commission, corruption in PG&E uh, that uh, diverted hundreds of millions of dollars from safety, from maintenance, and from operations. They diverted that money to profits and bonuses uh, for executives and for the company. So it, it became very clear that this wasn't an accident and it was, uh, uh, it was bound to happen. The whole culture of PG&E shifted. It shifted from looking at safety early on in the two, in, in two, before 2000, and then in the energy crisis, it became all about dollars and cents. The bottom line became the key focus, and they would do anything to maximize profits, and they did that by cutting back on testing and other things. So we saw that, and uh, then that started a fight, basically, and we were able to finally get PG&E uh, convicted of, uh, of uh, six felonies. They're on probation today for that. Uh, three felonies, I'm sorry. And, uh, and then we also found that, uh, uh, that we've changed and tried to work with the Public Utilities Commission. We were able to get rid of the commissioners there, and now we have a much, much more consumer-friendly and appropriate relationship between the utilities and uh, uh, and uh, and the, the regulator, who is, which is where it should be. It was incestuous before. People from the utilities were walking the halls of the Public Utilities Commission. It, it was a, a shameful experience, and, and we got the re what we saw were the results of that, and that is the destruction, and even the destruction of 2017 and 18 in the fires that we saw. Complete re result of inadequate utility and uh, lack of proper maintenance and oversight and, and lack of proper regulatory authority 
used on the utility. Where do we stand today with PG&E? And I know PG&E has tried to file bankruptcy um, several times, and I don't know whether they are still in bankruptcy or if they pulled out of bankruptcy. Um, where, where do we stand with um, the current status with PG&E? Well, PG&E is in bankruptcy. Um, there has been legislation. In fact, the governor, uh, Governor, uh, governor Newsom, has done an extraordinary job over the last few months of bringing people together and crafting a, uh, a real solution moving forward with utilities. But PG&E is in bankruptcy. They, uh, uh, the concern was, what are they going to do with the 30 or $40 billion of liability that they have from the fires of 17 and 18? Who was going to pay that? PG&E doesn't have the money. Uh, there was a tendency last year in the legislature, I did not vote for it. I was the only Democratic senator to vote no on this. It was a, a partial bailout of PG&E for the, the negligent behavior that they had in, in causing those fires of 17. Uh, I did not vote for that, but the governor put together a good proposal this year now for, for PG&E to exit bankruptcy. By next June, June 30th of 2020, they have to have a plan in place to pay the fully the victims of the 2017 and 18 fires. They will do that on their own without any ratepayer assistance. Ratepayers will be part of a insurance fund going forward to help pay when the utilities do everything right, when they have not been negligent or found negligent in their operation, when they have been found you know, safe in that sense and not, uh, not been responsible for a fire, then we will all share in the cost of that, uh, that recovery from that and the damage that was caused because we all benefit from those wires. We all need that electricity. And if they did nothing wrong, we should all socialize that cost and pay it. And I'm fully supportive. However, going forward, if they are negligent, if they did not follow this and act responsibly and reasonably, then they pay. Their shareholders will be responsible for it, not the ratepayers. So the governor did a great job, and I was pleased to support uh, uh, his, his legislation. And, uh, and also the main thing is after the fires in San Bruno, the CEO, Peter Darby, left that company with a $28 million golden parachute. Wow. He, wow. Le he left that with the, after causing the, the culture of PG&E to, to prioritize profits over safety. So this new legislation won't let that happen again. It holds the compensation for executives and CEOs tied to safety in the future. Well, this ties into another bill that you were successful being able to put in, which was SB 465. Um, do you remember that, that bill? This was the one about the structure and the Irish immigrant that, uh, could you, can you speak to that? Because that had to do with structural safety and it, it was a sad situation. It, it, that was very sad. This was uh, in 2015, uh, I believe it was 2015 when uh, there were uh, Irish students came over for the summer from Ireland and were visiting in a uh, apartment house in Berkeley. And they were all out, out on the, uh, uh, the the patio or the, the landing that above was the the um, the patio of uh, of this raised uh, apartment in Berkeley, and that structure collapsed and it killed uh, uh, killed six individuals, uh, and uh, they were uh, from Ireland, and it was devastating to these families. Some of one woman was uh, one young woman was from uh, from the Bay Area, and. Uh, uh, her mother was uh, became a champion to make sure that we could and held everyone's feet to the fire to make changes in that. But after seeing that and after understanding what occurred on that balcony, we were able to determine that the dry rot in that construction was excessive. The dry rot caused that balcony to collapse. So I chaired the Business and Professions Committee at the time in the Senate and that oversees the uh, uh, contractor state license board. So we could see that there were problems, obviously, with the construction and the manner in which that was conducted. And we found also that the contractor that built and constructed that apartment house had had $26 million of settlements, secret confidential settlements with, um, with property owners after that for his deficient uh, workmanship. $26 million over the last few years before that collapse. Uh, and they found that his workmanship was, was inadequate and substandard. So what we were able to do was create legislation going forward that uh, 
uh, one would not allow for these secret settlements, not allow for these confidential agreements to occur, and if they do, they have to be, I mean, if there are settlements, they have to be reported to the contractor's license board to make sure that they're uh, they were not missing anything because the contractors license board at the time after that collapse they were embarrassed They did not know of those settlements. They did not know of the poor workmanship of that contractor And that's what we've changed now in law so that we will find out Jerry you were also well known for the environment and uh, SB 968 was Martin's Beach access Where are we right now with the Martin Beach access? Are we still in the courts? Are we have we negotiated something with uh, with the, with the owner, Mr. Kosala? Well, no, that, uh, as you know, Martins Beach is about eight miles south of Half Moon Bay. Beautiful beach, unbelievable. And the pictures going back a hundred years of people enjoying that, that wonderful beach surfing. And uh, it is a private beach, meaning that it is owned. But California in the, the 1970s passed the Coastal Act, uh, which was an initiative on the ballot. And the Coastal Act says that there are no private beaches in California. There has to be access for everyone to enjoy the beauty of this great state. Um, and so the beach had been open all of the time. And uh, when Mr. Kosla bought it, he decided that he would close the access. There are about 50 or 60 cabins that are privately owned on the beach. And he closed it just for access to those who live in those cottages. After doing that, uh, we found that that was obviously in violation of the Coastal Act. And with the Coastal Commission, they uh, were suing uh, Mr. Kosla for that, and we had legislation that we were planning to, to that we introduced and passed that uh, the State Lands Commission could use eminent domain to take that right of way to make sure that the public has access. Today, uh, the courts have sided with the people, uh, and it uh, and the Supreme Court did not. Uh, they chose not to hear the case. Uh, last year is my recollection of it and uh, so at this point it is still there are other cases within the court and with the Coastal Commission but fortunately Mr. Kosla has removed the gate that was there and at this point in time uh, the access is open uh, for anyone to go down and uh, and so nothing has changed that it has been for the last 100 years today. Well, but that, that doesn't mean it won't change. That was quite a victory uh, for the billionaire fighting uh, the public's right for access to the beach. Uh, one of the next things I'd like to talk about a little bit, Jerry, is transportation. Um, as you know, San Mateo County and I've had an opportunity to interview quite a few of the assembly people um, on the peninsula and mayors. Um, currently, we still have the single driver. We do not have a transit district in, in San Mateo County, meaning BART, SAM trams, Caltrains are all fighting for the same federal and state tax dollar. Do you have any opinion on whether a transit district would be a benefit to either San Mateo or Santa Clara County? Obviously, the sentiment is to raise money, but the obvious thing is we, can't, we haven't been successful getting the single driver out of the car. Well, we haven't been successful. California is very unique in that we were kind of built around the automobile and, uh, and never focused on, uh, on mass public transit, such as New York has a very robust subway system. San Francisco has a good system with Muni. Uh, however, in the peninsula and in other places in, of California, we have not focused on that because ease of transit in the car has always been the the prevailing way of transit and transportation. But that's changed. It certainly has changed in the Bay Area because there's, there's no room on the road any, anymore and people are struggling. When it takes two hours, it takes me longer to go to San Jose from San Mateo today than it does for me to get to Sacramento. Um, and, um, and that's wrong. And especially people who work all day and spend two hours on the road in the morning and two hours at night is outrageous. Their quality of life is suffering. We need to do more to get people out of their vehicles, to get them into, into public transit. But the only way they'll do that is when it's convenient. So public transit has to be convenient for people. You can't make, be required to take two transfers or three uh, transfers to get to your destination. It has to be smooth and seamless. BART has been successful and has worked well. Uh, certainly it's uh, at capacity during many times, and that's why there's conversation about opening another tunnel, a tube under the bay to go across to serve that uh, part of that need. Uh, we have to do more to, to make it. We do have a, a transit district, San Mateo Sam Trans is, a, is a, 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 a transit district in San Mateo County providing the resources for paratransit, for bus service, 
and for the Caltrain support that we have. The problem is that the bus service is, is minimal um, and doesn't run as frequently as necessary, and people have chosen not to ride it. We interviewed Seamus Murphy, the coordinator director on podcast by the Bay, and to quote Seamus, which was kind of a surprise to me, he said that the Samtram bus is for the elderly, the disabled, and the senior citizen. Um, so I was a little disappointed, but before I share something, I want to share something with you. Are you familiar with a past council person named Dave Tanner? Dave Tanner from uh, Woodside. Woodside, yes, yeah. I know Dave. Well, Dave has a proposal, um, and I know he's retired, moved out of the Bay Area, but Dave Tanner had a proposal, as we all well realize, Tanfran Shopping Center is going to be leveled eventually. Okay, it was bought by an Australian group probably about seven, eight years ago. Uh, and they, his forefront is a 380 super bullet train that would connect all those cities, uh, whether it was Tracy, Stockton, or Fresno, where the traffic is coming in from. Any thoughts on that? Or, and I, I encourage you to listen to the Dave Tanner interview on our, on our website. We also have a, uh, uh, a video on there, too, which uh, explains what he's trying to do. And I know he's got an uphill battle on that. So are you familiar with that at all? Well, I'm not familiar with that proposal. I wasn't aware of the, the Tanfran being demolished. It, it seems like it was only built yesterday. But uh, uh, the issue of, of, of a high-speed train or high-speed rail going to uh, Merced and Fresno and, uh, uh, and then down to Bakersfield seems uh, it's reminiscent of the high-speed rail that we're, we've all talked about and voted for in 2008. Uh, and that, I see, as, is a possibility when that uh, when that comes up a little more, we should be able to see uh, high speed rail taking you know people from the valley to Silicon Valley, and uh, I mean that's the real challenge. If we can get people from Tracy, if we can get people from Fresno and Merced and Stockton into Silicon Valley, into where the jobs are in a fast, expeditious manner. That will solve a tremendous amount of our congestion and, and, and really provide some better quality of life for people. That is the proposal. That is where high-speed rail is going, even though it has had its challenges. But Governor Newsom has appointed some good people to, to oversee that with the, with the focus of, of, ma of managing and, uh, uh, and really prioritizing where we can get the best bang for the buck. And that's what's necessary. So either if Dave Tanner has an idea that would work or the high-speed rail, but that is critical that we get people coming from there. How do you think we should be able to fund this thing? Do you think that um, private industry, should this be a combination of the state, federal government, and companies like maybe Facebook, Google, or Apple contributing to this? Um, today's day and age, uh, there's, a, there's a new giant out there, and the new giant is technology. And technology um, wants, to, wants to help. So how do we approach that? Well, I think technology wants to help, but it depends on at how, how much they want to help. I know Google has made the commitment of a billion dollars for housing in the, uh, in the Bay Area and where they have their facilities, and I think that's a phenomenal, phenomenal step. We have not seen that very much from other large tech companies, um, and I think that the public is, is, uh, is wanting to see that feels that there's a responsibility that there is a responsibility for them to provide those resources there has been conversation now about having a mega bay area mega measure on the ballot in 2020 that would be a 1 cent sales tax increase going solely for transportation uh, and around the Bay Area, the nine Bay Area counties would vote for it, and if it passed, there would be a one-cent sales tax dedicated for transportation. Now, where that would go, you would see uh, uh, a part of that would go to provide some um, dedicated funding for Caltrain. Right now, Caltrain does not have the money. It will be electrified in the next few years, but the ongoing operational cost is not covered. It's shared by the three counties that it serves. This would provide some dedicated funding so they can purchase more trains, provide better access, more timely headways, and provide better service. And also that would fund part of the tunnel that we're talking about in the, under the bay. Also, it would maximize transit as much as possible. The goal is, and some of the resistance though is, that, well, why were we adding a sales tax that you and I are going to have to pay to provide transit and transportation to solve the problem that tech 
pretty much has created in the Bay Area. So that's an issue, and uh, I think people are, are being more concerned about that than they had been uh, in the past. Well, going back to the CEO of, of Google with the billion dollars, uh, the billion dollars does have a, a string attached to it, like you said. And, and one of the strings attached from the CEO um, is that his proposal for his housing development be approved. Um, are you aware of that? No, I didn't know that there was yeah. a connection to that. but I. I would think and hope that his housing proposal would, on the natural, be approved uh, because we definitely need more housing. And uh, certainly Sacramento, the governor has made it clear, I think the legislature has made it clear that we want to try to eliminate a lot of the roadblocks and obstacles that are in the way of housing construction today to expedite it and uh, especially affordable housing, which is where we really need uh, need to apply our efforts. Let's talk about the governor. The governor, Newsom, says that we need 3.5 million housing developments based on an average. Um, one of the questions that I propose to most of the elected officials is what type of housing is that? Is that first-time homebuyer housing? Is it workforce housing? Is it subsidized housing? Is it Section 8? And the answer comes back, I don't know. So how do we approach a market where we need 3.5 million, of course, on a statistical basis, based that we haven't produced enough housing in the last 30 years in the Bay Area? How do you think we can approach that much better than we are? Well, I think when you look at housing and housing construction and the need for housing, the market generally will take care of itself. If you build more affordable you know, if housing or even market rate housing, uh, that will expand the opportunity, expand the supply, and, and the demand will fill that, but it will fill it all the way up the ladder in terms of, of those who are uh, for affordable housing, that then it would lower the cost, hopefully, of housing and make more housing affordable for people who can't today uh, afford it. The, um, I think that's, that there is some of, of that uh, goal in mind. But when we're looking at housing, there are opportunities at every level. I mean, there are some locations where with tax credits and, and uh, low-cost land or public land where developers can come in and, and provide affordable housing, housing for those who are in the, uh, that really can't afford a single-family home somewhere, and it mostly will be greater densities of housing, uh, multi-story, um, and... Uh, apartments and condominiums, I think, are what we will see more of in the future rather than single-family home development. Well, one of the things on observation of being a 38-year realtor, I'm noticing in San Mateo and Santa Clara County, we're building high-end rentals. We're not building homes for first-time home buyers in the demand that we really need to. Um, and I'm a little bit concerned. Um, obviously, we're going to probably see some downturn then we're going to have a bunch of rentals available on the market. So how can we steer? Um, we keep using the buzzword affordable housing, uh, and that is usually subsidized housing, meaning the uh, developer or the state tries to bring the rent down to a level that's affordable for a teacher, affordable for a chiropractor, affordable for a nurse. There's not enough of that housing. But all we're doing is creating rental units. How can we encourage, at least in San Mateo and Santa Clara County, to build housing that is actually being able to be purchased? Well, I think the, the goal is to find the opportunity to lessen the cost of land. And that's the, the I think, the golden, the golden spike, really, for any type of subsidized or low-cost housing teacher housing. Many of the school districts have, and they've looked at it, the community college district has done a fabulous job of providing uh, workforce housing on their land uh, in the campuses that they have. Fortunately, when when the district was, was formed, uh, they had a lot of land. Land was pretty available, especially at the top of the mountains along the, uh, the range. And so they've been able to provide affordable housing on public land. So when you eliminate the cost of the land, you can charge less rent to, to make it pencil out at the end. And that's really the key. School districts can do that. 
public uh, places can do it. San Mateo is doing that in downtown San Mateo right now, next to the railroad station. They're building housing there that uh, I don't know whether it's affordable or not, but I believe it is. It's on public land. Well, in the last recession that we had in 2008, I remember going to the Board of Supervisors, and the Board of Supervisors was contemplating selling some of the land in the county, uh, whether it was the court or whether it was the library or whatever. And that was owned by San Mateo County or partially the state. Um, I've always been a pioneer, and I said this 10 or 15 years ago, we need to use the surplus land that we have to save in county. Um, I know Senator Wiener's bill, uh, 60, I interviewed him on 60. Um, obviously, 60 got tabled for another two years. What was the deficiency in your mind um, under Senator Wiener's bill under 60? Well, you know, Senator Wiener has been a champion uh, for housing, and uh, I have a great deal of respect for him and, and enjoy working with him on in so many areas, and, and even on housing. We've worked well together, and, and his ideas are good, and he's willing to, to kind of put it out there a little bit and know that we have to challenge, we have to stretch in order to provide that housing that's necessary to you know, I mean, we've heard this for many years. We have to provide housing for our grandchildren. Uh, well, you know, that's true, and it really is true today because there's no possible way many of our grandchildren can live in this area. Um, the, the, the challenges that, that I think uh, Senator Weiner faced in, in his legislation, and one of the issues that I found, and I've worked with him, and I believe that had the bill been continuing and, and moving forward, we would have resolved this issue. But for me, the, the challenge was after meeting with the, the 25 cities that I represent, we had a uh, kind of a forum one day where they all came together. I wanted to really get a picture. I wanted them to paint a picture for me of what his legislation would do to their city, how it would change their city and where. So we saw that in, in many locations. And what, what I heard and the conclusion I came to was that these cities... They've all, they all claim they want to do housing. They will provide the housing that's necessary. No one said that they wouldn't build housing. Or the amount that you just tell us what we need, what you need, or what the state needs to meet the needs of this area and the goal. We will provide that housing. Just don't tell us where it has to go. Don't prescribe exactly the location. Because that may not be where our community wants that housing. But we'll put it someplace. We're not going to say no but we'll put it where we feel it's a better place for that. Now, when you look at the cities on the peninsula and where they have developed in the district that I represent, from Brisbane in the north to Sunnyvale in the south, when you look at those cities, most of them, on the natural, have constructed new housing, multi-unit housing, higher-density housing along the transit corridor. They put those the housing next to the train station. Look at San Carlos, right on the train station housing. Look at San Mateo phenomenal amount of growth in housing close to the trains there. Other cities, South San Francisco has done the same. So it, it happens there because that's really where it's supposed to go. So cities will do that, I believe, if that is the natural, if that's where they have to put housing, that's the first place they'll look. Well, I want to be a little cynical on that transportation issue. Uh, there's no study in the state of California showing building near a quarter transportation places that people will actually take public transportation. One of the things that I challenge, if you are building near the corridor of transportation, why are we building two-car garages? Why are we building uh, to house cars again when those probably could be used for other units? I know in Bay Meadows, the Bay Meadows had a phase out there, which was uh, that you needed to uh, provide or rent a car or share, share riding. How can we cannot do that in those corridor of transportation? Because I think it's a hand-in-hand -hand situation. Transportation seems to be just as much of a fight as it is to, to provide affordable housing. Well, and, and it is. And actually, much of the legislation that we're seeing, there are a number of housing bills that are still in play in Sacramento this session. Uh, and some of those are designed to do exactly what you're saying, to eliminate a parking requirement for development. And cities are objecting to that because they realize and feel that, well, people are going to still have cars and that they're going to have to put them somewhere. So if they don't have a garage, they're going to put it on the street, and that will affect the community at large. But we're trying to force the issue by lowering the requirement for parking, 
uh, and for other things in property. The other thing that we're doing is there are a number of uh, auxiliary uh, dwelling unit pieces of legislation, the, the granny units the, the, that are you know, in the back of someone's home and the property or above the garage, trying to make that easier for people to develop and to provide more housing for people in those avenues. There's resistance to that by many cities and individuals and, and neighborhood associations because they don't want to see that and, and, and that increase. So, I mean, there has been resistance to a lot of the things that we have, we have done and tried to do and attempted to do, but all of it is designed to increase the housing stock at every level in California. And, and in doing that, we have to, I think, reduce some of those requirements that are, on, uh, that are onerous and in many cases just add tremendously to the cost of housing. We have a rental crisis in the Bay Area. We, we all realize, and as a realtor, that um, uh, rent control doesn't seem to work. Uh, it, failed in, it failed in Berkeley, it's failed in a lot of areas in the cities around the state of California. Uh, we have a proposal called 1482, um, and uh, we've got a cap rate on it, and I know you've been studying the bill um, for a long time. And have you taken a position on it? You know, I have not. And usually in the legislature, you there are some bills. That one had been amended just recently when it was in the Assembly, and, uh, and now it's in the Senate. It has gone through a committee, um, in, I think the Housing Committee in the Senate. I don't sit on that committee, so it, it's now, I believe, in the Appropriations Committee of where I sit. So I will have to start paying attention to it. Usually with the, I think there are about 1,500 bills left uh, for this year, and uh, we, we don't have the luxury of knowing all of them at the same time. Usually it's before they get to you in some form. That's when you spend the time to study them and, and learn what they have. So I don't have an opinion on it. I do know that I have not been a fan of rent control historically. I've not supported it. Um, I don't feel it solves the problems of housing, does not create more housing. Uh, and it uh, has created, I think, many problems, especially in San Francisco. I know people who have property there and, and have, uh, have struggled with the rent control provisions that have made it very difficult and, and hard for them to, uh, uh, to manage their, uh, their property. In Stockton, um, a mayor uh, did something kind of creative. Stockton, unfortunately, is sometimes the place where a lot of people that are released from prison um, or put on the streets and they barely can get minimum wage jobs, much less get an apartment. Uh, in Stockton, what they're doing right now is providing $500 a month towards rent. Um, do, what do you think we could do in San Mateo County? I know Section 8 was taken over by San Mateo County, not the whole Section 8 program, but for San Mateo County. Um, I, as a property manager, I had a young uh, single parent approached me, and this was fascinating, she wanted to do Section 8. We as real estate realtors do not discriminate on Section 8. We provide an opportunity if they're qualified with credit uh, and income to do this. She called on a three-bedroom, two-bath in uh, Redwood City that was priced at 4100 rent. And she had a voucher, supposedly for almost $4,000. I was astounded. But she didn't have any income or she was just starting a job. So the crisis on housing out there is pretty big. Any suggested ideas that we could do locally with the state or the county? Well, I, I mean, I think Section 8 housing vouchers are important. Um, and in most cases, there are more vouchers than there are landlords willing to take them. And uh, that has been a problem in San Mateo County that I've struggled with, certainly Landlords will take a voucher when the market is in the other direction. Today, they can rent it without any problem, and they don't take it. I actually have legislation this year to make two, two things, especially related to veterans. People who serve in the military, who get out of the military, have been discriminated against in California for rental. People don't want to rent to them. They feel that they may get into the unit and they may have some mental challenges from their service and be a problem to them. So they have discriminated in a number of areas, and my legislation would add veterans to that protected class where you cannot discriminate against someone on the basis of housing. But it also does. It also is kind of the first bill in the state that would 
challenged the issue of Section 8, or what we call VASH vouchers, veteran vouchers that veterans have, which will provide housing assistance, also other services that they may need during their, their time. That would require a landlord to have to take a Section 8 voucher from a veteran. Uh, and I think we owe it to veterans to do that. That's, uh, it's passed the legislature so far, and uh, there's been some resistance, certainly, by the real estate community. The, uh, uh, interestingly, the Apartment Association has not been opposed to that. But, uh, and there are only 1,800 VASH vouchers. VASH, these are veteran Section 8 vouchers in California. 1,800 total, and they can't use them because no one will take them. Uh, out of the 6 million housing units in rental units in California, that just seems like it's a little unfair. So we're trying to, to provide housing for veterans and, and try to make it better for those who need Section 8 to be able to take them and make the process easier for landlords as well. Well, I, 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 I congratulate San Mateo County for pioneering working with Section 8 to make it with Section 8 so they have a better understanding of the dynamics of our rental market. Jerry, you've done a lot in the last 30 plus years, and I only want to, want to kind of wrap this up, but I want to ask you to brag about a little bit some of the things that you felt that you were pivotal in making a difference in your political career that you're very proud of. Well, that's a, that's a tough one, Patrick. I, I don't know, you know, we generally don't uh, talk about those things, and, and I usually have been one that when you do something, you move on to the next thing, and you don't just kind of sit on your laurels a lot. Certainly, you mentioned it, the tobacco issues were important and we're still fighting those battles. I had legislation this year to ban flavored tobacco products, especially in the e-cigarettes, to keep those children from and those young adults from smoking, which is, which is critical. I think where we've done a lot and uh, I, I've tried to look at over my tenure is uh, I get mad. I see things in our community, in our society, and I get mad about it. And when I get mad, I want to do something to improve it and change it. I mean, an example, just briefly, is a poor a Burlingame, Brent Studebaker, a young boy, was on a party bus one night for a 21-year-old birthday party for someone. Picked him up at a parking lot, drove around for an hour on this party bus with a dancing pole and music. And three hours they drove around, then he brought him back to the parking lot, got out, got in his car, drove, and he ran into the sound wall in San Mateo and 101 right about where Poplar, Poplar is and killed him. And I said, there's something wrong with this process. The, the driver of the party bus said, oh, I don't have any responsibility for this. I'm, just, I'm the driver. I don't care what happens behind. Well, that's not true. And I mean, it, it was true at the time, but we changed that with limousines in, in the 1980s. And on this case, so there's legislation today because this is not the only death that occurred from a party bus. Now, with based on my legislation, and we haven't had any deaths in the last few years, I believe because of it, is that if you get on a party bus and you're under 21 and there's alcohol being served on that bus, then there has to be someone 26 years of age who will sign taking legal and civil responsibility. Well, Jerry, I can relate with that. In 1974, I was hit by a, a drunk head-on and cut out of the vehicle. The engine was sitting on the passenger side. I lost all my upper jaw part. And, but I, I survived the whole thing, but I, I really respect a lot of what you're saying. And I know that you've been instrumental in that legislation uh, for driving in the ignition of being able to right. not be able to turn your car on until you breathe into this apparatus. I congratulate you on your, your efforts on everything. And I think I did read something on your site, and it did say, don't get Jerry mad. <laughs> and I, I thought that was good. Um, on behalf of Podcast by the Bay, Jerry, I want to thank you. And I know our audience out there will be dying to hear, hear from you. And only one final question, Jerry, and I know it's going to be a tough one. Um, do you have any plans besides <laughs> I, vacation? Uh, you know, I don't have any plans, Patrick. I don't have, uh, uh, I have a year and a half left in the state Senate. I'm going to use that every minute of that to the best of, of my ability to, to make the change that I think is necessary. But uh, I have no plans after that. I haven't given it much thought. Um, I know it, uh, it will be a change, uh, but... Uh, Maybe we can make you a co-anchor on Maybe podcast. Maybe we will. We'll bay. see what happens. We'll see what happens. But uh, thank you, Patrick. Thanks again, Jerry. My pleasure. Thanks. Great to be with you.
You've been listening to the sounds of Leo DeVito. And you can find out more about Leo and his music at the Highway Soul Music page at highwaysoul.com. All right, well, with that, we're going to go ahead and sign off. And please check out all of our shows anytime, 24 hours a day, on any of the podcast sites. So with that, signing off, and we'll catch you on the next time of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. You can contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com and also Highway Soul Productions www.highwaysoul.com You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay as our handle or on Facebook facebook.com slash podcast by the bay and remember you can listen to any of our episodes anytime on any podcast site until next time stay tuned stay tuned